No, the, the bottom line answer is you want us to be like your son. So help us know him better. Help us see who he is. And then for the part that we can't do, would you help us to get there? We want to cooperate with you and surrender to you and submit to you, but would you, would you begin transforming us again into disciples you want us to be? I pray that uh, as we look at your word today, again, that we would understand what it means and, and see how it intersects with our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was uh, a Moody Bible Institute student, they had this assignment that we had to do. Andrew remembers this. Ashley remembers this, I'm sure. Uh, a description of a discipled student. Did you guys both do this? Okay, you did it. What was your grade like? <laughs> Ashlyn says it's good. Yours is higher than yours? Okay. <laughs> good answer. <clears throat> and in that assignment of a description of a discipled student, you had to give, it was like six or eight or ten characteristics that you think students should look like when they graduate from your ministry. What will they be like? And so I remember getting that assignment and thinking, well, I've got to think about what the Bible says about this. So I'm searching passages, thinking about it. Like, how am I going to capture everything? How am I going to get everything into this description? How's that going to work? I don't know. And so I remember laboring over it, worrying about it, thinking I'm going to forget something. Like, I'm going to get to the end of it and, like, forget prayer, you know. Or I'm going to forget, like, trust in Jesus as Savior, you know. And it's going to be like, F, right? Something's going to go wrong here. Uh, But did the assignment, turned it in, don't remember the grade. At least I'm not going to tell you if I did. But um, in any case, uh, that was an assignment that caused me a lot of like, I don't know why it caused me so much worry, but but it did because I felt like I got to put everything in a, in a concise order of what I want to see kids look like. I don't know for sure, but I think Jesus did that very thing when he gave the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He, he was naming the different kinds of things that make a disciple. And I don't know if we can improve upon that. I'm not saying the assignment's worthless. Uh, I'm only saying that he did a really good job. <laughs> and, and I know that in some sense, that assignment was trying to get at what does a teenage disciple look like? What are some things you want them to come out with? I get it. That's all good. But, but Jesus gave us a list, and it's something that we're supposed to live up to, to, to meet, to be formed into by God, the Holy Spirit. So I want us to look at that together. I want to do three weeks on uh, a description of a disciple out of the Beatitudes and then launch into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5. Okay. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he starts with the Beatitudes. Now, you might say, what in the world is a Beatitude? 
Is that something your kid gives you they're going to get grounded for, you know, that beatitude? Um, no, actually, a beatitude is a statement of blessing. These are the blessed people. These are the fortunate ones. These are the ones that are, that are in an enviable position for the rest of the world. These are the blessed. These are even people that ought to be, because blessing can be translated happy. These are happy people. Here we go. Matthew chapter 5. We'll read the Beatitudes all the way through here. Now, when he saw the crowds, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are the Beatitudes, statements of blessing by Jesus. These are people that are blessed. Now, before I talk about the first two today, I want to make some general comments on how we should read these, how we should think about these. And I want to say four things. You do have a, you do have a handout in your bulletin. It doesn't have any extensive notes on it. It's pretty much blank. So if you want to jot these down, you can uh, write whatever you'd like down. But um, back from vacation, don't have a full set of notes for you. But um, what can we learn about the Beatitudes in general? Like the next three weeks, what should we be keeping in mind as we look at these? Well, A, these are not natural abilities, but spirit-produced qualities. Because you could read this list and go, I love a good cry. Blessed are the mourners. You know? I'll probably go home today and have a good cry. You know, that, that's not what it's talking about. It's, it's not talking about the fact that you, you get teary-eyed easily, you know. Or you might say, well, I, I am pretty uh, merciful. I, I, I treat people kindly and, and I feel bad when people have bad days. He's not talking about any natural sort of thing that just happens to happen and you're really good at that. Or we're going to talk about poor in spirit today. Uh, it, it's not about like, oh, I'm by nature very meek and humble, poor in spirit. Like, I don't call much attention to myself. I was kind of raised that way. You know, it's just kind of who I am. He's not talking about you, okay? He's not talking about natural stuff that you just happen to do because that's what your personality is like. He's actually talking about someone who believes in Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, who has the Holy Spirit living inside them and is transforming them to look in a supernatural sort of way. In other words, the church ought to look like this. The world doesn't. It doesn't. And, and if they do have qualities that look similar to this, they don't go far enough or deep enough. And if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian and you think that's arrogant, I'm only saying that our teaching is when you get saved, when you become a Christian, you believe in Jesus as your Savior and the Holy Spirit lives in you and starts producing things in you that are, that are not natural. They're supernatural. Okay? So you can't look at these and say, I've been this way my whole life. 
B. Character precedes commands. Now this is interesting because the Sermon on the Mount is a whole lot of commands. And they're commands that get at the heart of what does it mean to follow Jesus. So Jesus will say things like, You've heard it said, do not murder. But I'm telling you not to be angry. You know, not, not to be angry at people. Don't call people you fool. You know, so, so, so he gives commands and they get at the heart. But before he gets into commands, and many of us as Christians, we're kind of like this. We're kind of like, just tell me what I got to do. You know, I believe in Jesus. Tell me what I got to do. I'll do it and, and I'll be the good Christian. And, and Jesus says, no, we're not, we're not going into what you do first. We're talking about who you are. Because you can't do the Christian life unless you are the Christian, unless you have the character, unless you have the Holy Spirit living in you, this is impossible. You can't do it. That's the other thing about having it be Spirit-produced qualities. That means it's impossible for you to be poor in spirit on your own. It's impossible for you to be meek and merciful on your own. The Spirit has to help you do that. And so what he's doing is he's building character into you, Christian character, and that comes before obedience. It's prior to obedience. Okay, C, every Christian should display every quality. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount in general that this is kind of like the, the, the super spiritual Christian. This is the ideal Christian. This is not the reality that we live in. This could even be the future Christian, the living in the kingdom of God even more fully when Jesus comes back. But it's like, no, that's not, that's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about the Christian today. So he says, blessed are you that are persecuted. The persecution's happening today. This is for you now. It's not for later. And it's not that you look at this and say, boy, um, meekness, I, I'm going to do that. No, no, it's I'm supposed to have all of these all the time. Now, I, I know you can't do them all at the same time, but each of these qualities should be present in your life. They, they should be available to you when you walk into a conflict, can you be the peacemaker? Are you someone that stirs up conflict and enjoys it or, or promotes it? That's not good. It's not good. So all of these should be in every single Christian. You shouldn't say, wow, the church doesn't have many of these people. Maybe we do say that. Maybe we do read this list and go, I don't know a lot of mourning Christians. We'll talk about that later this morning. Where are the Christians that cry a lot? What's that about? Well, maybe we should have more of this, okay? It's kind of like the fruit of the Spirit. None of us want more patience because we know what comes with that. <laughs> but it's a fruit. It, it, it goes with the whole thing. You, you can't just have one and not the other. It's an all or nothing. This is what, who we are as Christians, as disciples. Uh, in part D, the most blessed people display these qualities. I said earlier, blessed can be translated as, you know, a position of, of blessing underneath God. You know, that God's blessing us. It can be that we're in an enviable position to the rest of the world. Like, who's got it better than the church? Look at them. They're blessed by God. Now, that could even be true when you're being persecuted, which might seem a little bit like that's, you know, counterintuitive. The most blessed people. You might even be, if you're brave enough to say, if blessed could be translated happy, and, and it can be, you might even say, 
the happiest people ought to be people in church. Now you say, how does that work with mourning? We'll talk about that too. But how about this? How about saying it like this? Some of the most emotionally mature people ought to be the church because they're in this position of blessing. Is that true all the time? Of course not. But that's available to us by the Spirit. These qualities are available to us by the Spirit. So the most blessed people have these qualities, which makes our brothers and sisters in other countries who are losing their life very blessed. But do we look at them as enviable? Okay. That's how we'll start. Now let's jump in and let's talk, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the first one. I I do think, my take on this is that Jesus has these in a certain order, that he leaves nothing to chance, and, and that he starts in the right place, which is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Each of these have a blessing, you know, you're, you're blessed if you're this way, and then they have uh, 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 the blessing that God will give you for being this way. Like, like if, if you have this quality, you're blessed because I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give you this. Each blessing has that, each beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, happy are you and blessed are you if you have a poverty of spirit. So, he's talking about the spirit, that immaterial part of us, okay? He's not talking about wealth. Uh, The Catholic Church often takes this verse and says, this is about taking a vow of poverty, living with little, uh, That's not what this is saying because poor people can trust in money just like rich people can because poor people might want it as much as rich people do. So the the, the idea that you don't have money doesn't automatically make you spiritual. I, I don't think you can defend that from other passages in the Bible either. This is talking about a poverty of the spirit, that immaterial part of us. Now, are there other Bible passages that help us understand what that means? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Let's list a few and see if we can get at this a little better. Uh, can we start putting those up, Jim? First Timothy 1.15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I am the worst sinner. I think to be poor in spirit is being able to admit, I'm really messed up and I'm really in need. Next verse. Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I don't boast about myself. By the way, that wasn't a statement of truth because I probably do boast about myself. But I shouldn't. I should only boast in Christ. That should be it. So there's a humility that's demanded by this poorness in spirit. Next. uh, 2 Corinthians 12.10 that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and in insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So we actually can boast in weakness. I can't do this on my own. I'm terrible at this. But God's with me, you know? And I'm actually pretty strong. I'm facing this really hard thing in my life, and, it, and it's, it's just a burden to me. But actually, I'm, I'm strong in it when I'm weak. Next. 
James 4, 6. But he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Again, the idea of the humble person. I'm not proud. I don't think much of myself. I, I, I lower myself in front of an almighty God. Another one? But I have one more. Second Corinthians 3, 4. Such confidence as this, as this is ours through Christ before God. My confidence is not in my ability. My confidence is in Christ who's working in me. I put all of my confidence in him. Was that it? That's it. All right. So those are some things that I've been thinking about the last few days on, like, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Could I take all of that and put it into a statement? I'll try. How about this? Jesus' disciples are marked by spiritual bankruptcy and in desperate need of God's grace. To be poor in spirit means I'm bringing nothing to the table. I got nothing as far as spiritual currency. The wallet is empty. And I desperately need God's grace. Let me grab something out here for an illustration for this. Leave this here. All right. This would be spiritual poverty. I've got nothing in the cup to offer God. Nothing that would draw him to me. I'm, I'm empty. There's nothing here. Nothing that would attract him to me because I'm so amazing. The problem with this whole poorness of spirit, this poverty of spirit is, we tend to fill our cups with something that makes us feel good about ourselves and, and it kind of it comes in the back door of, I can see why God loves me. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty special in some ways, you know. And part of that, you know, I'm not saying we have to have bad self-esteem or anything like that, but I'm saying we tend to fill our lives with things that make us feel good about ourselves, like money. There we go. You know, and, and so we say, look, I, I work hard, have a good job. I'm not really in need of a lot. I don't have to pray for my daily bread because I know where my bread's coming from for the next 30, 40 years. I kind of got it figured out. And so because we have this, we're a little more sufficient and we don't see the emptiness in our life. We don't see as, as acutely our need for God. Or you might say, well, I got a good family. I got a, I got a spouse. I got kids. Put that in there. I've got stuff going on. I, I kinda, I'm busy enough with family, and they're great. They kind of they take all my attention. And in some ways, they, they should take a lot of your attention. But I don't feel like I'm in need. I kind of feel like I got what I need. I got a, I got a wife and kids. Or, or you might say, if a problem comes my way, you know what I'll do? I mean, at some point, I'll probably pray about it. But I'll figure it out on my own. I'm a smart guy. Something happens to me. I know the right doctor to go to. Something happens to me, I'll figure it out. I'm a smart guy. So, I think my life looks pretty good. I, I don't think I'm as in great a need as other people are. And that is not poverty of spirit. The problem is, we love being great. We love having things figured out. 
We, we value being independent and self-sufficient. And in many ways, that's great, because of course you should be working hard. Of course you, you should use your intelligence to work out problems. Of course you should save some money. These are all like good things, unless you put them in the cup and pretend like they give you some sort of better standing with God. And you feel good about God because your life is going well. And God says, you don't look great at all to me. You, this doesn't impress me at all. And Paul says, that's why Paul says, this is rubbish. This is rubbish. All that I had going for me compared to knowing Christ is rubbish. I don't, I don't need it. I don't need it. And so the poor in spirit says, I have no currency. And in fact, what I need from God is this. None of those things I put in my cup are living water. And so, if, if living water is what I need, and Jesus says I need it, and actually I thirst for it, why wouldn't I empty the stuff that I'm putting my confidence in and come to God and just say, would you fill me up? And God says, of course I'll fill you up. Of course I'll give you living water. Of course I'll quench your deepest needs and your deepest thirsts. And I'll give you the kingdom of heaven. I'll give you the kingdom of heaven. I think it's kind of brilliant that, you know, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God a lot. Here he talks about kingdom of heaven. And you might say, what about the kingdom of heaven? Um, why is it kingdom of God sometimes and kingdom of heaven? Some people have suggested maybe that's because Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience and the Jewish people were kind of like, the Messiah is going to start kicking out Rome and ruling, you know? And Jesus is like, no, my kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's bigger than this. It's bigger than just, just Israel. It's the kingdom of heaven. And, and so he says, you get the kingdom of heaven. And so in some ways what we're saying is, is really simple. What's the kingdom of heaven? It's Jesus' rule in your life. It's when you get forgiven by him, and now you get to follow him and obey him. And so in some ways we're just saying, you get saved. You get to be in the kingdom of heaven when you come to God saying, I'm empty, would you fill me up? Because I've seen that all the stuff in my life, in the, my family, my spouse, my possessions, can't satisfy the spiritual craving I have. And they never could. As good as they are, they never could. So, if you want to be more poor in spirit, what might you do? Uh, I got one thing to suggest, and maybe you have some more. Uh, it, it doesn't do any good to be like walking around like this and, you know, poor in spirit, you know, <laughs> kind of with the shoulders down and... I'm not confident. I have no self-esteem. Everybody hates me. I got nothing. You know, shouldn't even, shouldn't even show up at work today. Uh, that, that doesn't help at all. You can walk confidently in Christ wherever you go. But if you want to be, if you want to understand you've got no spiritual currency before God, I'd say you gaze at the Lord in the Scriptures. I mean, how else are you going to feel how small you are unless you see how big he is. Because the problem is, we look at each other and we're like, I look good compared to you. I'm smarter than you. I make more than you. My family looks better than you. you know, and we do the comparison thing and we're like, oh, I feel really good because I'm better than all these people. And God says, you don't look that great to me. 
Looks like you're in desperate need of my grace, and I am. And so, if you look at God in the Scriptures long enough and see how amazing He is, how big He is, how holy He is, how perfect He is, how good He is, you start to say, I got nothing, and I'm in need of everything. Maybe you have another answer for how you might go about becoming poor in spirit, but that's the best one I can say to you this morning. You look at your God in the Bible, and then you compare yourself to Him. Then you get your hands out and you're ready to receive. I love, uh, I think it's Donald Miller, right, who wrote Blue Like Jazz, and he talks about being in line at the grocery store and the woman in front of him is using food stamps and he judges her, you know, for using the food stamps. And he's like, oh, but wait. Every single one of us are spiritual beggars. None of us have what we need. None of us are self-sufficient. And he got off his high horse and was able to see his own dependency on God. All right. Next, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I hope you see the irony of this statement. I mentioned it earlier, but, you know, blessed doesn't doesn't just mean happy. It doesn't mean happy are you, but happiness is part of the definition of that. It could be translated that. It's more than that. It really is a blessed state of existence underneath God. But the irony of it is you could look at it and say, happy are you that cry a lot. And some of you that are criers say, amen, I I get that, I know that. I always feel better after a good cry. Okay? Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. What did Jesus have in mind when he said that? Well, let's look at some crying passages for a second. Can we get some of those up? As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus wept because... Jerusalem was blind to who he is. They were lost, unsaved. Do we weep over those that are lost? Next passage. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. We mourn because we sin. And we know our sin has effects on our family, our friends, our church, our co-workers, ourselves. We may be forgiven for everything we do, but, but sin is still sin. It's still sin. And we mourn over it. Next verse. Uh, Paul's talking about the Corinthian church and the sexual immorality in it. And he says, and you are proud. Shouldn't you have rather been filled with grief? And put out of your fellowship the man who did this. You should have been sad. And instead you were proud. Next verse. Paul says, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and you will have, you, I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they've indulged. Paul says, I'm afraid that when I visit you, I'm going to be sad. I'm going to be grieving because some of you have not repented yet. And you should have because you know better. You know better. And it grieves my heart. Next verse. Romans seven twenty four. 
Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul's thinking about his own sin, and he's just like, it just tears me up. I'm a wretched man. But then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let me just say this. Mourning is mourning over your own sin. Can we get that statement up? It's, it's a, the Jesus' disciples are marked by mourning over their sin and the sin of the lost. Sin should make us grieve. Both our sin, I think in the Corinthians passage, the church's sin, the sin of lost people, that should make us sad. It should cause us grief. Do we stay grieved forever? No. Because if you walked around crying all the time, that wouldn't be helpful either. Because Paul says, what a wretched man I am, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus takes the edge off the morning, doesn't he? I mean, he takes the, you can cry over your sin, you can repent of your sin, and then you can turn to Jesus and he can change that mourning into laughing and joy because he's forgiven you. But that doesn't mean mourning shouldn't happen. If you're a disciple of Christ, there should be an element of sadness in your life. It's kind of like this. We ought to be sad because what we're really realizing is I put a lot of dirt in my cup. And because that dirt is in my cup, God's had to deal with it on the cross through his son. He had to bear the weight of my dirt, my garbage. And when I realize this is what I really have to offer God, here's my spiritual life. That should make you weep. Now, I know not everybody here is a crier. I understand that. And I've met people who are very low on the emotion scale. Okay, you know who you are. And I know not all of you maybe will weep and weep. But if you don't feel sadness over your sin there might be a big issue there. If you don't feel anything over your sin, if you overlook it. The problem with this whole mourning thing is we love being happy. We love being happy by nature. It's just in us to be happy. We want happiness. And so some of us, when we sin, we're just like, forgive me, and then we go on our way and we're happy again. And we never spend the time actually grieving it, feeling it. I've heard people apologize, and I know I'm guilty of this myself, and sometimes what we want is our apologies to be like, I'm sorry, we're done, next thing. And we think God wants that too. I'm sorry, we're done, next thing. And God is like, there is something I want for my disciples, that when they sin, they feel it. And they grieve over it. And when they look at the world and they see the sin in the world, they don't just get self-righteous and say, look at how messed up everybody else is. But they actually have tears in their eyes when they see people are sinning and they're enjoying it, but they're so far from being fulfilled. Sin will never fill you up the way it's supposed to. And people that do it think that they're engaging in something pleasurable, something good, something right but it's empty. Do we grieve over that? If we do grieve, 
if we do repent, Jesus promises comfort. And isn't comfort, again, another way of saying, you're saved, you're forgiven. Forgiveness brings comfort. Because I can, I can pour out my sin before God, and I know he comes alongside me and says, it's all taken care of. And there's comfort there. And one day in heaven, some of us have done things that the effects will last the entire life. You know what I mean? Because they impacted our marriage or our family, and we can never undo what we've done. And so we're going to feel a measure of grief the rest of our life, probably over some of those things, broken relationships we can never put back together. But in heaven, he wipes the tears from our eyes. And the ravages of sin, the, the, the things that have been done to you, that have hurt you by other people, that stuff will be wiped away. Some of it starts getting wiped away even now. I don't want to limit God's powerful action. Some of the comfort happens even now. The rest happens in heaven when he wipes every tear away. I'll just, I'll just tell you, if you're looking at verb tense, it's... Uh, for the first one, it's blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, presently is kingdom of heaven now. The comforting one is in the future. It doesn't mean it's all going to be in the future, because Second Corinthians 1 says we get a lot of comfort from God right now. You should read that if you want comfort. You know, Second Corinthians 1 is amazing. Comfort is now, but fully present in the future. And so we do mourn, because we do get sinned against. We do commit sin against others. But then we repent. Um, You want to be a better mourner? Uh, I'd say, yeah, you repent of your recent sins. You may choose to repent to another human being. Because sometimes saying it out loud to another person... It just shows you the weight of what you've done. I've seen the tears flow a lot more readily when I have to say it to a person sometimes. You may cry with the Lord as well, though. You meditate on the plight of the lost, and then you share the gospel with them. You you, you think about what will it be like for them to be away from God's presence forever in hell? What will that be like? And if that doesn't create emotion in you, I don't know what will. Hell has to create emotion in us. It ought to create emotion in us. We ought to grieve over how sinful, how enslaved people are to their own sin. They can't even see it sometimes. That's how we mourn. Let me conclude with this then. The Gospel says that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. He rose again from the dead. We can be forgiven. We can experience that comfort. We can, we can receive the kingdom of God e- even now, even though we get it fully later. If that's what you want, I just invite you to pray a prayer like that in your own heart. Jesus, forgive me. I believe you died for me. I want to be one of your disciples that's marked by being poor in spirit and by mourning. And the other things we'll talk about in the next two weeks. Help me do that.
change me. I invite you to pray a prayer like that at some point this morning. For the rest of us, we are going to take communion in a moment. I invite uh, the worship team to come up at this time. I want to give you a chance to mourn. We're going to go over time a little bit, uh, but I think it's going to be worth it. I want to give you a couple minutes to consider your sin, just to think about it. What have you done recently? I'm not asking you to try to relive what you did 10 years ago and, and somehow pull that back up and feel... I'm not saying that. I'm saying think about what you've done in the last week, the last month. What, what are some things that are there that you really haven't pulled out before God? What are some things that you have felt no emotion over, but you know you should have? And ask God to bring you the sense of mourning. And then when that time's over, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have communion. So I'll pray at that time. Ushers, you'll come up at that time, and we're going to invite you to come up, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. Our teaching is the bread stays bread. The juice stays juice. But they remind us that Jesus' body is like the bread. It went to the cross for us. His blood poured out, and that's the grape juice we're reminded ourselves of why we are saved. And sometimes communion ought to be the celebration, you know? It was hard for him, but it's joy for us. And sometimes I think communion ought to be, this is really sad because he had to bear my sin. And so I just keep doing it, you know? What's, what's wrong with this? I need to repent. I need to turn from it. So... If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is open to you. I want to give us a couple minutes of silent reflection.